Now, it's interesting because in this parable, both the wise and the foolish went out to meet the bridegroom. All ten apparently expected to be able to enter into this wedding feast. But what is clear is that when Jesus returns, whether it's at the rapture for the church or here at the end of this seven-year time frame known as the Great Tribulation at the Second Coming, some will be ready and some will not. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Are You Ready to Meet God? Yesterday, we studied the parable of the ten virgins, and today, by God's grace, Pastor Carl will be preaching on the parable of the eight talents. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Jesus tells us, that most people will be like the folks in Noah's day, totally unprepared when he comes back. And he wants his people to be in a state of readiness. And so he's going to unfold for us two parables so that we are ready to meet our judge. Chapter 25, verse 1. I know some of you don't have Bibles. I've learned that about 50% of the people who come to our church don't even own a Bible. And so if you don't own one, come to meet the pastor tonight and we will give you one. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take extra oil with them, but the prudent ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Now while the groom was delaying, they all became drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there finally was a shout, Behold the groom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish virgins said to the prudent ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. However, the prudent ones answered, no, there most certainly would not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the groom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Yet later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert because you do not know the day or the hour. So let's start with the first parable, the parable of the ten virgins. So he begins chapter 5 with a parable, and a parable is nothing more than an earthly illustration or story to teach a heavenly spiritual message. And he uses a scene from the Jewish wedding ceremony. Notice verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven. Let me stop there for just a second, because over the years, on a number of occasions, people have called into the Bible line, and they've asked an important question. They said, is the kingdom of heaven different from the kingdom of God? And the answer quite plainly is no, not at all, because they're used interchangeably. I could give you many examples. Most of you know the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, and uh, Jesus there uses the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God interchangeably. On that day, he said to his followers, truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in the very next verse, Jesus says, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
um, when Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to little children, he says in Matthew, truly I say to you, unless you change and become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, he says the same thing, except he uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. So we're talking about interchangeable phrases, but more importantly, we need to understand the three primary usages of this term, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in scripture. In a broad sense, the kingdom of God speaks of God's sovereign rule over all the universe, where he is a sovereign monarch that nothing is escaping his notice. There's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. God is not up in heaven sweating this morning, wondering what's going to happen. He is in total control. So in Psalm 103, verse 19, we read, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Or King David will say in Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Bible is clear in the New Testament in texts like Romans chapter 13, that every authority that exists is established by God. So in one sense, in a very broad sense, the kingdom of God incorporates everything. Now, I pause there to say that some of my amillennial replacement theology friends, that's all they see concerning the kingdom of God, or primarily what they see, so they don't see some coming kingdom, some literal kingdom. But they would recognize with us that there's also a spiritual dimension to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of, your, of this world. And that it was necessary to repent and to believe, to enter the kingdom of God. And Luke's gospel, he said to those followers, the kingdom of God is within you. He said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. You cannot see, much less enter the kingdom of God unless you have a spiritual birth from above. That is the spiritual dimension to God's kingdom because no unbelievers will enter it. But there's also a literal physical dimension to God's kingdom, not just in heaven, not just within you, but literally on the earth. And so on what we often call the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer. Someone says you shouldn't pray it. Well, on one account it says pray, pray like this. On another account it says use these words so you can go either way with it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's he speaking about? That literal earthly kingdom that someday will be upon the earth. Revelation 11 and verse 15 speaks of that day. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen is doing a fast forward all the way to the book, the end of the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 20. It says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So there is coming a day when the Lord will literally rule upon the earth. The concept of the kingdom, there's hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that speak of a promised kingdom to the nation of Israel. And God is a promise-keeping God. He will keep every promise he's ever made. And yet the length of it, we learn in the New Testament, is a thousand years. Not the concept, simply the length of it. 
So spiritually speaking, he is ruling only in the hearts of those who are born again. And unless you are born again, you will never enter into the coming kingdom because no unbeliever will enter into it. Now that's the theology behind verse one. Let's dig into verse one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to 10 virgins, that is 10 young unmarried women who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Incidentally, if you're not familiar with Jewish customs as to how marriage took place in that day, in very much, at least in Orthodox circles to this day, then this won't make a lot of sense to you. Unlike in the Western world, a Jewish wedding was very different from what we perform today. First, there was the betrothal, where a groom would go to the prospective bride's father and they would agree upon a purchase price. Why was that essential? Because he had to be able to demonstrate that he could leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and provide for that young woman. That's why no pastor in this church will marry anyone unless that young man can show all by himself without any help from her that he can provide for her that he can make a home for her. And so they agreed upon the purchase price. They would drink from a cup. The arrangement was sealed. And from that moment on, they were called husband and wife. And unlike engagements in our culture, they can easily be broken. To break a betrothal, it had to happen either by death or by a formal divorce. Now, the betrothal usually lasted for 12 months, and the man would go and prepare a place for his bride. But you're called at that moment husband and wife. Four illustrations in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, where Joseph, he's only betrothed to Mary, had had no physical relationship. He's betrothed to her, but he's called her husband. Why? Because they're considered husband and wife. And of course, that's really what the exception clause found only in the Jewish gospel, Matthew's gospel, refers to. That was the virtual sole position for 1,600 years. That if during the betrothal period someone had been unfaithful, and Joseph assumed Mary was unfaithful, he loved her, didn't want to disgrace her, so he wanted to put her away secretly. But he was simply trying to obey the law, being a righteous man. That's what the exception referred to. It has nothing to do with adultery after marriage. And so they would go, they would prepare a place. The bride didn't know the exact hour, but the time was approaching and so she would be ready. And that's really what we see happening here. And the groom would come, the groom's best man would come and he would blow the trumpet and say, behold, the bridegroom cometh. And then they would have a lighted procession all the way back to uh, his home and it would be sealed and done. And by the way, this parallels Christ's relationship with the church. He agreed on a purchase price with the Father, a body you have prepared for me, Hebrews 10. He sealed the deal at the Last Supper as they drank from a cup. I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back, and his coming will be with the shout of the archangel, and he'll gather his church, and we will be with him forever. Now, by the way, this is one of the reasons why all the excuses that we make for a divorce today typically do not wash. Look, I'm not saying there's not a time when a woman is being abused and hurt and all those things when she can't separate. Paul teaches that. Now, that's a whole other subject, and remarriage is another subject altogether. But many times people hit a rift, and they say, I'm tired, and 
And they just go to the next person like it's a dating relationship. Well, this one's over. Let's start a new one. And I will say that over half the people of Community Bible Church are at least on second marriages. Why? Because that's the culture. And you reach people for Jesus, and divorce becomes a part of that culture. But I want to affirm there is forgiveness with the Lord. God is a forgiving God, and he can give a family a fresh start. But we can't make excuses and rationalize what is so often rationalized because then we do a great disservice to the next generation. You say, well, why should I be committed to this marriage when it's gone sour? For the same reason God sticks with you when you go sour. He doesn't divorce us every time we blow it. He sticks with us like glue. And he will come back someday and receive us. So just know that this parable is a familiar picture to the Jews who are reading this in the first century. Let's first consider the five foolish virgins who were unprepared. The five foolish virgins who were unprepared. Again in verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take extra oil with them, but the prudent ones took oil in, the fl- in flasks with their lamps. Now, it was customary to carry a little extra supply of oil because you didn't know during this night arrangement, is it going to go three hours or four hours or five hours before the bridegroom comes? So all ten take their lamps, but five take an extra supply of oil. By the way, in two English translations, they mention the prudent or the wise first, and then the foolish second. But in every Greek manuscript that every English Bible is written on, actually, it is the foolish that come first and the wise that come second. And I say I think that's important. Though it may not read as smooth, but I think it's important because he is emphasizing and underscoring the foolishness of these women. Verse 5, now while the groom was delaying, they all became drowsy and began to sleep. Kind of like a few of you here this morning. You're already nodding off. I see you. They, They knew the time was approaching. And so they trimmed down their lamps. They want to conserve the oil. They become drowsy. They began to sleep. But at midnight, there finally was a shout. Behold, the groom, come out to meet him. So now midnight, the groom shows up. And of course, some of these are not ready. Suddenly, 10 virgins. Behold, the bridegroom comes, verse 7. Then all those virgins got up who were ready and trimmed their lamps. So in one sense, all 10 are invited. And of course, God invites all people into a saving relationship with himself. He desires all men to be saved. He wishes that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. All 10 want to identify with the bridegroom, but as we'll see in a moment, he's not going to identify with all 10. So you have these foolish virgins who are unprepared. Be there on your outline. There's the five wise virgins who are prepared. The five wise who are prepared. Now, to capture the flow of thought, let's begin again in verse 7. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps, those who were prepared. But the foolish virgins said to the prudent ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. So the flames are sputtering and Look, look like they're about ready to go out, and they, they need some oil. 
But notice their response, the response of the wise. However, the prudent or the wise ones answered, no, there most certainly would not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. Which, by the way, reminds me that no one can prepare for Christ's return for you. You have to prepare for yourself. Children, just because your parents know the Lord doesn't mean that you know the Lord. You have to make a decision. God has children. God has no grandchildren. Some of you are married and and you have a believing spouse, but you're unbelieving. Or very often, as one man recently said to me, he told me that both his father and grandfather were preachers. So what? That's a wonderful heritage, but they can't be saved for you. In addition, uh, let's look at the consequences of the virgin's preparation. The consequences of the virgin's preparation. Let's read now verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the groom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. So while the foolish women are off looking to buy additional oil, the bridegroom shows up, Those who are prepared are welcomed in, and the text says the door was shut. When they finally arrive back, look at their sad end here in verse 11. Yet later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. By the way, the the tense of the verb that's used here means they said it over and over and over again. Lord, Lord, open up for us. Lord, Lord, open up for us. Lord, Lord, open up for us. They have the language of relationship. They have the profession of a relationship, but not a true possession. So the bridegroom responds, verse 12, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And the Greek tense that is used here says he says it once with absolute finality. It's too late. There's eternal consequences. Now it's interesting because in this parable, both the wise and the foolish went out to meet the bridegroom. All 10 apparently expected to be able to enter into this wedding feast. But what is clear is that when Jesus returns, whether it's at the rapture for the church or here at the end of this seven-year time frame known as the Great Tribulation at the second coming, some will be ready and some will not. And again, no one can prepare for you. And if the rapture happens and you've heard the gospel in clarity and in power, and God alone can measure that, you won't believe. Second Thessalonians 2 says, you'll be a part of a deluding influence that you might believe what is false. Why? Because you took pleasure in wickedness and refused to believe the gospel. And here are these people, they're watching all these events unfold on the earth, but not all will be ready and the door will be forever shut. Now we speak of a second chance in relation to sanctification, Some of you feel like you've failed so deeply, God can never restore you. He can. He wants to give you a fresh start. But there's no gospel of the second chance. You cannot get a second opportunity to get saved once the door is shut. So Jesus says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so in applying the parable in verse 13, be on the alert then, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, there are many today who identify themselves as Christians, and some who say, I'm not a Christian, but I'll become a Christian at some point when I get around to it. And some profess they know him, but they don't really know him. 
And that's what's true of these women, these five foolish women. They use the language of profession. They repeat the title, Lord, Lord, twice. Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha. Those are terms of intimacy when you use the person's names twice. Like, I have a relationship with you. Well, you may think you do, but I never knew you. Now, all men know there is a God. There's no such thing as an atheist. And a lot of Christians are wasting their breath trying to give proofs for the existence of God. And the only proof Paul gives is in Romans 1 and in Romans 2, the creation of the conscience, which is self-evident. So all men know there's a God. But that's not the same as knowing God personally. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. And so without a true possession of salvation, without knowing the Lord personally, a day will come when the door is shut forever. Now, notice, it's not by accident, at the end of this parable, Jesus says, do you see it? Be on the alert. Now, in some of your English translations, it just says watch. And actually, the King James that renders it watch is correct because it's one word in the Greek New Testament. But it's not just any kind of a watch. It's kind of a, a watch where you are totally in tune and paying attention. And so wanting to key off the nuance of the Greek, most translations say be on the alert, not to mention this is a verse that has been grossly abused. It's sent people up on mountaintops and rooftops and they quote this text. And Jesus is just saying, be ready, be on the alert. Don't neglect these critically important spiritual truths. Now that's the first parable. You with me? All right, let's go to the second one. The parable of the eight talents. The parable of the eight talents. Remember, he is trying to ready people for his return from heaven. Now, he'll do in this second parable what people should be doing if they are ready. He's going to underscore that, yes, we watch. Yes, we look with a sense of readiness. But what should we be doing during that time? And again, he is keying off of this principle called the kingdom of heaven. Notice how verse 14 starts. For it is just like. For what is just like? He's going back to what he has just described a few verses earlier in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven. For it, the kingdom of heaven, is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So we have this picture of a wealthy landowner. He's going away on a journey. And the master, of course, represents the Lord Jesus. And he's leaving three servants in charge with his property. Verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. I think most of you understand, but just know that when the Bible uses the term talent, it's not using it the way we use it normally in English. A talent today might refer to, say, some super athlete or someone who can sing well or write a bestseller. Never used ever that way in Scripture. We even have a show. What was it called? America's um, Greatest Talent or... Uh, America's Got Talent. America's Got Talent, right? So, so we even use the term in that respect. We tend to think of this word talent as some exceptional human ability. Never used that way in Scripture. It's used to describe a weight. It's used to describe a weight. And normally that weight is expressed in monetary terms. It might be gold. It might be silver. It might be bronze. 
And the weight depends on the culture, just like the term dollar in different countries of the world has different values, even so the term talent in Babylon was different from Rome, different from Egypt, and different from a Jewish talent. But a Jewish talent, in fact, that it is a weight is clear. When you come to the end of the book of Revelation, you come to the, um, the sixth bowl, it describes these uh, hell zones that are 100 pounds each. So again, it is a weight, and sometimes it's in gold, but most often it was used in silver. And so what was the value of a silver talent? One silver talent in Jesus' day was worth 20 years of income. It was a significant amount of money. And if you had one talent, even that amount of money that most people on the earth at that time would never see at once in their entire life, you were considered to be very wealthy. So here's his master, in essence, handing over cash to manage, and they're giving different amounts, five talents to one, two to another, and one according to his ability, and he went on a journey. Now, let me just say parenthetically that many commentaries and some sermons that you might hear, they tend to interpret this only in the practical respect, and they miss the whole context of the eternal, now, I don't think it's wrong necessarily to speak of the practical, that if God's given you some resource that you use it wisely and well, and if you can multiply it, but that misses the whole point of the teaching. The teaching is in reference to things that are of eternal significance. When you come down to verse uh, 30, he'll say, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you know those idioms, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know that those are idioms that are descriptive of the place of eternal wrath called hell. Outer darkness, unquenchable fire where the fire doesn't even give off light. When Christ comes back as judge, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. And he went on a journey. So this parable is about this wealthy man. He's going on a business trip, a vacation. We don't know, some venture. But he's going for an extended period of time. And the text says that each servant, or we might say each employee, was given note each according to his own ability. So don't conclude, by the way, because one is given five and another is given two and another is given one, that he is being unfair or unequitable. If you draw that conclusion, then you're reading more into the parable and you're ignoring the, the, con- the, co- the context and really what we even do in our own day. He is not giving preferential treatment. He is honoring people according to their ability. Now, I admit there are some people who get passed over for maybe an increase of promotion or rank or whatever it might be, and, and unfairly so. But some get passed over and they complain and they whine and they are big crybabies over it when they don't really need the job. If we go on a medical mission trip and we bring a surgeon with us and you're one that has skill with, say, an IV bag, he's not going to give you the scalpel. He's going to let you do what you can do. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 023. Every word that Pastor Carl preached today was from the Bible. 
2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Have you ever wondered how you can prove the Bible to be true? Well, in Dr. Brogy's book, How to Prove the Bible is True, Pastor Carl examines five crucial evidences that prove the Bible is the Word of God, and he will share how you can definitively and accurately convey these truths to others. With a donation of any amount, you can receive a copy of How to Prove the Bible is True today. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.